Welcome. Bienvenidos. Bienvenidas. To the bilingual podcast series Aquí y Allá, conversations with contemporary creatives from Mexico and the USA. A este episodio de nuestro podcast bilingüe Aquí y Allá, conversaciones con creadores de arte contemporáneo de México y Estados Unidos de América. Stephanie García and Peter Hay of ProArtes México. De ProArtes México. Each podcast will be in the artist's preferred language, Spanish or English. Cada episodio será transmitido en el idioma preferido del artista, español o inglés. You can find the translated transcript of each interview on our website, proartesmexico.com.mx. Pueden encontrar la transcripción traducida de cada una de nuestras entrevistas en nuestro espacio web, proartesmexico.com.mx. Follow along as we jump the border to connect artists from Mexico and the USA. Acompáñanos mientras saltamos la frontera para conectar artistas de México y los Estados Unidos de América. Our guest in this episode was born in Guanajuato, Mexico, and is currently living and working between Baltimore, Maryland, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is a multidisciplinary artist working in both visual and performance art, creating uncategorized works that draw from his personal experience as a queer Latinx immigrant in the United States. His works often confront and delight viewers with some of the most pressing issues of our time, reoccurring themes of race, class, gender, otherness, celebration, nature, isolation, and the climate crisis are all present throughout his work. His installations and colorful sculptural works have been on display at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, Athens School of Fine Art, Transform DC, the Baltimore Museum of Art, the Walters Art Museum, the Gilcrease Museum, and the Reach at the Kennedy Center. Recent honors include a Tulsa Artist Fellowship, a Meriwether District Artist-in-Residence, a Halcyon Arts Lab Fellowship, a Ruby's Artist Grant, a Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Award, and an Andy Warhol Foundation Grit Fund Grant. Jose Corona is also the co-founder and co-director of Labodies, a nomadic artist-run arts organization that creates opportunities for queer and women-identifying performance artists to exhibit their work. He is also the co-founder and co-host of La Valentina Podcast, a queer-centric podcast celebrating queer Latinx artists and their accomplices. Well, welcome, Jose, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I described your past a little bit, a little bit about what you do, but would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, my name is Jose Corona. I am a Mexican immigrant artist living in the United States. Um, I am currently in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but my home base has been in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., uh, in my practice, I do, uh, my approach is multidisciplinary. So a lot of performance, installations, um, sculptures, okay, and um, great. wearables. And you had mentioned, I saw in your bio that you call yourself an uncategorized artist. Could you maybe explain that just a little bit more? Yeah, you know what? So that was not, uh-huh. I want to say maybe like a little bit over a year ago, Um I always had such a difficult time kind of like, you know, creating that category for the type of work that I do. And I always felt this invisible, almost pressure. I mean, I can't say that somebody was pressuring me, but I felt it that it's 
easier for an artist to maybe claim one discipline and stick to it so that you're, you know, oh, the XYZ yeah. artist does the red paintings with the, the blue dots. You know, it's so much easier than, oh, my God, they do uh, these things and they put on the wearables <laughs> and I think it's fashion. I don't know if it's costumes. I think it's these weird things hanging. You know what I mean? So as I was thinking about that, I realized that uncategorized is such an uncomfortable place to be and and but also at the same time an exciting and freeing kind of um descriptor for your work yeah. because uncategorized what does that mean like you know don't don't it have does, expectations. It, it created some mystery for me i was like you know is that <laughs> what exactly does okay, that good. entail and you know i feel like your work it is it is beautiful and colorful on the wall and on a podium or on a mannequin but you know, I, that's like just part of what the work is. That's like, that's like what maybe twenty five percent of what the work actually is, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And yeah, and I think that right. That's another thing, right? Like, uh, when I start, so I, my training, my background is in painting, so it was very traditional. You know, I've had a long history of really taking kind of like I knew I was going to be an artist very early on so painting was something that was kind of romanticized for me and then uh you know it, historically you're like ooh, the painter holds the highest position like even above the sculptor or any other art form so it was very it's you know annoying but um i quickly realized in college that i was hammering canvases together and making these assemblages and then like borderline performing within these painterly installations and then I had to realize okay they're like I'm clearly breaking away yeah. from within that little square you know what I mean the little sure. uh, so category that, that I was putting that kind of leads me to a question so how how exactly did you get into the arts yeah how did I kind of enter the arts um so you know what as I feel like every artist well no that's a lie because I've met a bunch of artists where like I discovered I wanted to be an artist in my mid-20s. For me, it was always something, I never even called it art, but I was always involved in making stuff. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, listeners will, that are artists will totally understand, uh, you know, playing with mud even, but making like strange little sculptures or always carrying around a sketchbook or computer paper. <laughs> so that was always just within me, but it wasn't until about... Um, I guess really like in elementary school, people were like, damn, like you really do carry that folder everywhere. Like that's what you do. Or people would want to pay me $5 <laughs> to draw a rose for their crush or something. And then, you know, slowly, because I did have the privilege of going from um, public schooling when I arrived to the United States, my parents had the foresight to just stick me in a mm -hmm. private school. And it was a Catholic private school. Um, I'm no longer of the faith, but it was great. And through that, I kind of got funneled into a private high school, which happened to, it wasn't a magnet arts high school, but it had an oh, entire wow. floor dedicated to the arts. So at around 14, 15, um, they had us take this, which is funny, like an art test. So I think we had to draw something <laughs> like, you know, they gave us like two hours or something. And, and then you were accepted into it or not. And then if you uh -huh. were, you were able to take all the art courses, which for me, was amazing imagine this being in high school and having most of your classes be in the arts and being able to climb the stairs to the sixth floor it's entirely arts and you're able to have your headphones on you're able to do your work like spend as much time in the studio as you can 
So for me, that was like, yeah. th- again, very early, like teen, you know, involved in this world. Uh, <laughs> of course, I became the art club yeah. president. And that was fun. We like went every Wednesday night and did an extra like four hours of studio time. It was fun. And so I was always kind of, I was indoctrinated into this way of thinking through my mentors who were amazing, Patricia Frederick and Kathy Burnett, who really kind of instilled in me that uh, this was a, a, a real career and, you know, promised that there was ways to make a living from it and that I should really honor this calling that I had. So that was really instrumental. And of course, because I idolized them, um, they had gone through the MFA program sure. at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. So, of course, you know what I mean? That's my mentor. I was like, I want to go to the best best star school. So I applied uh-huh. there and a bunch of other places, but I chose MICA. So that brought me to Baltimore. Uh, so then it was, quote unquote, official. Like, you know what I mean? I was now embarking sure, on this, sure. this idea of becoming an um, artist. Well, I mean, I feel like that's an incredible formation for you because i mean how many people get to be completely surrounded by like minds and like personalities at that age and to have a have to have that formation in an artistic way Mm -hmm. um that's that's really rare and and pretty incredible and then yeah i feel very lucky and also i do feel that it was also like it was just such a beautiful combination because as an again a Mexican young immigrant artist you know honestly if it weren't mm-hmm. for the arts and understanding that that was my calling um I probably would have been funneled yeah. into some bullshit situation sure. you know what I mean out in the in the workplace or whatever so just like even the fact that like you know somebody with like modest means entering this art world for me yes. that's like a personal yeah. huge success you know what i mean like oh my god well and that's you I'm know shoulders with that success people. hasn't really ended i mean now you said you're in tulsa you're a, a part of the tulsa artist fellowship is that correct yes so um i was actually lucky enough to have received my first official fellowship mm-hmm. in dc in 2017 2018 and that kind of, that was the Halcyon Arts Lab. And it, it kind of, it was a new chapter for me where I was so used to the the grants or, or, you know, specific project commissions, which was great. But it always came with, again, that project at the end. So if we're giving okay. you this amount of money, but this is what we expect in return. And so I was very used to that. But when I found fellowships, the key difference for me was that the suddenly in a fellowship, they weren't investing in the project per se they were investing in the actual artist. So like, we want to support who you are because we've already, you know, we, we, we realize that yes, you, you are capable of X, Y, Z. So we just want to invest in you because investing in you, we know is investing in your practice. So after that, um, I applied to a million other fellowships and I happened to get into the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, which is great. And I remember really keeping an eye for these types of opportunities because they're few and far between. I mean, there's tons of opportunities, but I specifically was looking for something that was truly going to support me in terms of like, um, you know, yes, there's a stipend that, you know, you can live Mm -hmm. off of, but that it also considers housing and studio space into this, you know, um, this kind of like situation. And so the Tulsa Artist Fellowship did that. And I came here in 2019, January. And so I spent one year here. And after the year, uh, we were, uh, okay. I guess, invited to apply for a second year. So I went ahead and did that. And I'm currently um, in my second year, which, you know, as you oh, know, yeah. has been marked by 
pandemic and all these things. So I feel like we, you know, we started off with losing a little bit of studio time, but I am here through December. And what's so amazing about this particular fellowship is that after that second year, they've created um, a set of grants just Mm -hmm. for uh, alumni or fellows. So after the second year, you do have the chance to apply, not for a fellowship, but for a grant that allows you to extend your stay for an additional year with with increased stipends and an actual budget for a community project. So it's very robust, you know, in its offerings. And I feel very lucky. I think that these two and a half years of being in, in a fellowship setting have done so such wonders for my practice uh, in terms of just really being able to fully immerse myself in my own practice and and be able to, uh, you know, both meditate on where I've come from, but also think about the future, you know, in a, in a very particular way that I think when I was having to deal with a full-time job mm-hmm. and then negotiate all these arts opportunities, sure, sure. it was very difficult. There's only and so many hours. I was actually in, day, in Tulsa when that first class for the Tulsa Arts Fellowship began. And it was like, you know, oh, mm-hmm. it was such an amazing project to bring in these artists, like some of the most incredible artists from all over the United States into Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, I'm just mm-hmm. so happy to hear that it's continued and it's like become such a strong thing because I think one of the real um, one of the real powers of that fellowship as well is that it is really connected to the community at large Um, you know in that like you know there's opportunities I think through the University of Tulsa to engage students there opportunities with the Philbrook Museum of Art and Mm -hmm. you know uh, your your studios are right in downtown um, and Right, right in downtown. And, you know, and that offers both, you know, it's a complicated situation because this happens to be the neighborhood or the setting where the Tulsa race massacre took place in 1921, where this is where Wall Street, Black Wall Street was erected. So it was one of the most successful, thriving black communities in the entire Mm -hmm. country, like really doing it up, doing their thing. And, you know, these mobs of white people were essentially it was it was kind of like a yeah. systemic plan to redevelop the neighborhood. So instead of, you know, figuring out how to do that or maybe even like, I don't know, whatever other way of doing so, they chose to go ahead and literally burn down and destroy the the properties and killing people, mm-hmm. black people that were in the neighborhood. So that was this uh, just two days ago was the ninety ninth anniversary. Yeah. So next year is the centennial of an entire community yeah. being wiped out through white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're living. You know, that's the kind of history that we're cont- contending with and, and responding to. So I think that, you know, I love that it's connected to the, the community, the city, all of those aspects, but there are, you know, real kind of like yeah. issues that need to be brought up and dealt with. And I think who better position than, well, first of all, the local community and then artists, right, that we're able to, dig through history, pull information out and re-piece it together, not as a, let's say, historical record, but as a different way to yeah. contextualize, you know, our history, which is fraught. Uh, do we trust who has the pen of history? No, because we know that it's been a corrupt person who happened yeah, to be yeah, in for- power or groups of people, of course, I'm being, you know, silly, but groups of people. And then, so how do we kind of like reckon with these horrible histories and move forward? Um, and then the other thing I was going to say with this idea of 
the fellowship so the, the two fellowships that i've done have been through private entities so it's individuals who amassed a lot of wealth and i think that even that puts a different perspective in my understanding of the art world so you know in my first fellowship i was a little bit green and naive so i was like oh my god like this is what i've been dreaming of it's great as it's happening i'm realizing uh the way i'm thinking about it is thinking about cork painters oh, yeah you yeah know what i mean if we think about like sure. the renaissance or like you know the, the medici for me it was very clarifying to kind of realize that there is no difference between what was happening then and what's happening now that at the end of the day you are functioning as a court painter if you will and that there's limitations to that. So that's eye-opening for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no, for Does sure. Like the, you know, the painter, oh, no. that person who's functioning to make the things for the wealthy family, like that. Like you mentioned the Medicis and the the collections that they have. You know, they like indentured servitude, yeah. essentially, that they would put the greatest painters and sculptors. You know what I mean? And so, you know what? I had a, a history professor, art history professor who was really amazing and I remember one of the things that always stuck with me was he printed um, a copy of one of the letters that Leonardo da Vinci uh-huh. wrote to a possible court to be a, become a court painter and it was so fascinating that in this like page and a half um, you know letter he goes on and on about listen I, I am good with say like even community I'm able to build you a nice weapon I'm able to cook a good meal I'm able to do this I'm able to do that literally expanding upon all these skills and then at the very end just saying and I paint a decent painting <laughs> and you know a fine sculpture if you need it so essentially really yeah. building the case of oh my god you're like pitching yourself to exactly your point like not I, I wouldn't consider myself like an indentured servant here but I'm thinking what is that relationship between a benefactor that is like giving you money presumably for no reason there's always a reason you know what i mean so i'm thinking like here we're revamping or trying to revamp uh tulsa right it's it's an industrial city again ravaged by by tragedy and now i think there's a shift to trying to kind of like revitalize it and historically let's not you know be be foolish about this historically you know artists come into quote-unquote you know um decrepit or ravaged or or you know slum-like neighborhoods and you know they find the setting they're able to get their little studio space for cheap and they create a quote-unquote vibrant neighborhood with murals and all these things and then developers stop step in right and they're like look isn't this a thriving community don't you want to pull in here and move in so then it does change the makeup of the actual neighborhood so i also want to be very clear that like there are a lot of things at play, including nothing is ever mm-hmm. free. So what is the transaction that's being had? Yeah. And then how I, mean, I think negotiate that that's how you're contributing to being that. aware of um, being aware of the, the cultural usage of art essentially is art, like art washing, you know, to like, like wash a, a space clean oh, of mm, those mm-hmm. that you don't want and turn it into like a hip creative community is like, that is definitely something that has been used. And uh-huh. I, I think it's, you know, the, the fact that you're aware of that and then also I think the fact that, like the kinds of artists that are being selected by the Tulsa Artist Fellowship um, are are definitely, I, I feel like the kind of artists that are going to be very sensitive in the work that they do and the way they work with the community and be very aware of what's happening around them. And, you know, you're talking about the Greenwood race massacre and, mm-hmm. and, and how that was something that was essentially washed from history for a long time, you know, like 
I grew up in Oklahoma and I didn't learn about that in grade school, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yes, like, that here, that's so much exactly. from locals. They're and, like, you know, I, I worked at Ringer in Tulsa about. and like you know. Reconciliation Park is literally behind it. Like you walk mm-hmm. out and walk through that park and, you know, mm-hmm. the everything, like just like in the context of what's happening in the United States right now, like the grounding that happened for me um, when I worked in downtown Tulsa around, um, the racial history of the country is like it really put it into perspective for me because I mean that was something that happened before civil rights era so it was easy to hide you know? um, mm-hmm. it was this like sort of pushback against the fact that the African American community there that was forced essentially to live in those box because it was the part of town that Tulsa didn't want to live in essentially at the time had essentially mass mm-hmm. well because they were going out in the community working in the community but they weren't allowed to spend money there so they would bring all that money back and spend it in their own community which allowed for them to create like you're talking about this uh, black wall street and then you know Mm -hmm. the resentment that came in the early 20s with you know as we know is like the huge recession time period and then the resentment of that community still being okay like thriving through that time period and like that like wait those mm-hmm. black people cannot be doing better than us. Like that's a real instigator, you know, and it still is like, we're watching that right now. So, and it's you know, like, nobody's pushing to be doing better, but just look, like pushing for equality and equity. Yeah. And you know what? I just found out, which I did not know that it's kind of like assumed that, you know, the, the neighborhood black wall street was raised down and then that was the end of it. But apparently, and I, you know, this is very light information that I received. So, like, I need to dig deeper. But apparently, uh, you know, folks were able to rebuild. And they were, they did, they did so on their own. And so they did thrive for a little bit longer. But then, um, you know, because, again, the community, yeah. the white community, what they really wanted was the land and the property. But folks were not willing sure. to sell. They were like, no, like, um, this is my property. I'm keeping it. So they thrived for a little bit longer, uh-huh. but then yeah. this highway, yeah. you'll remember it, that cuts right through downtown. That was like, I, I say I can remember the dates, but I want to say like about 10 years later. That's how they truly got rid of the community after they rebuilt. They were like, and now we are booting you out because, mm-hmm. oh, this essential highway situation needs to come through here. So literally disrupting yeah. the neighborhood yeah. with this massive construction, you know? So like the the violence in on top of violence like not only did you already murder kill destroy now yeah. you're literally physically doing the same thing again so it's very dense here right like i'm like and even when you said that when you li- worked at living arts sure. and the park was right behind you uh the memorial park e- even that stuff was so difficult for me a year ago when i was like but where am i how do i situate myself like how do i know what part of the town i'm walking on it's, because yeah. it's not labeled it's still hush hush you know like mm-hmm. oh, yeah even with uh the renaming yeah. like this this whole time it was yeah yeah it was called the riots right the tulsa race riots and it's like yeah uh that makes the white people look good mm-hmm. so the parallels to what our current conversation with the the protest regarding the mm-hmm. the murder of george floyd are they're not new they just become visible sure. for some yeah. people. And then obviously all um, of us at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very intense and, and deep history. And I, you know, all of that said, I, I do love Tulsa. 
and I love, I mean, I loved working in the Greenwood district. Yeah. And I love, you know, it's, it is a really quirky downtown and, you know, the breweries and, you know, that history does add to, you know, I think it does add to the way that the people of Tulsa are, you know, and it, people are, are becoming more and more aware of that. And I feel like, you know, there's going to be some really interesting, I think the next couple of months are going to be very interesting. Uh, just <laughs> very interesting. And I will say something that I'm shocked still though, however, that even this neighborhood Greenwoods yeah. district yeah. is still very white. So like for all the conversations we're having, all those establishments you just described, yeah. they're, they're mostly owned by white people or they are white people. So I think there is, there, it, we're, the conversation is still very green for this community where I think that acknowledging was a big deal that what took a hundred years. Well, that's not where it ends. And, and maybe people are like, oh, okay, we've done our thing. No, no, no. Like, how are you redistributing that wealth? How are you really kind of like helping black communities yeah, and indigenous policy. communities specifically yeah. here in, in Oklahoma? I mean, that's a whole other history too, like, you know, because the history of the, it's a the whole change history. of hands of land and the forced removal of natives to that place. And that, you know, the council, the council Oak downtown is the, you know, that it's was the center of Tallahassee, which mm -hmm. was the, the Creek settlement, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. the history of Tulsa is, is, Beautiful and painful and violent, um, all at the same. And to your point, I do always do correct myself when I'm engaging with friends or, or just you know having conversations with other people because I think it's easy to demonize and be like, "Oh, the people of Tulsa," but you do have to stop and remember, no, yeah. no, no, that's like the perceived history because yeah. it's actually full of amazing, beautiful people. You know, it's like we have. 36 37 uh native american tribes within you know oklahoma and so like there are amazing elements yeah. about tulsa i just think that it's been marred by the way it's handled sure. history I, or i think going you back know, to dealt the, with the, the topic of discussion and progress is that yeah you're right like this this discussion is not ending here but i think that you know it's actually just starting you know like actually having conversation because conversation requires listening yeah. and learning and I feel like the listening has not very much. always been there. You know, it's been very defensive and dismissive. And it's, I think that hopefully from this point, we start to have some more listening and learning um, and collective progress. Yeah. Because, you know, it really goes back to like the, I mean, yeah. the multiple Americas, but again, the two Americas, right? Like the, the history or the language of white America and how, so, you know, even the current presidential situation uh, with the Make America Great, well, sure. that is the history of the white section, right? Like, oh, we want to go back to when it was easy and we had all these slaves and everything was great for us. Well, that's yeah. not what we want on the other side. You know what I mean? So, like, this divide, I think, is still very... Um, and then again, you think about this country being such a baby in the scheme of things that, you know, I think about often, like, uh, when people say... You know, slavery yes. was only two and a half grandmothers away from this point in time. So kind of like really centering us ourselves in, in this mm -hmm. notion of like, the, like even the historical timeline. I think that we love as Americans to think of history yeah. as that thing that happened so long ago. But in reality, it's like, listen, in the history book, our current moment will be the next chapter or the next page after slavery. Yes. Like the book page will be turned and there we are. You know what I no. mean? Like, 
it is not trillions of years ago. There's like, still a, this a living survivor history. of the Tulsa race massacre in Tulsa. So, and you can read her accounts of the yeah. of the days. So, I mean, it's it's that recent that there's still like living <laughs> descendants of that particular event and. Yeah, and so many, and and this is you know the listeners out there. Don't worry, this is totally yeah, yeah. ties into my work. Well, you have this a whole piece that's called white construction, well, you know, in my you know, series. But out here, so it's you know it is. Yeah, you know, kind of like yeah, how we construct our realities. But just the street out my window, Brady Street, which was renamed, uh, is mm-hmm. is right on where the Brady Theater is. Brady, this person that they're commemorating was a yeah. Ku Klux Klan member and leader. You know, so like, again, how is how are we remembering history? Who is being remembered? Like, what are, you know, to shift this narrative involves yes. a lot, like literally physically changing the land. Yeah. Also, and I, and know, like that, the makeup of the community. Yeah, that, that whole, there was a whole debacle about renaming that street from Brady to mb brady which was like well they didn't want to change the brady so they added mb which was some civil war photographer that had nothing to do with oklahoma to now you know then they called it reconciliation way but then they they didn't take down the mb sign; they just put the reconciliation way above it and it was like wait you're not actually renaming it you know it's like yeah (laughs) but yeah and so and that's a type of kind of a resistance to it you know what i mean it's like oh like we will go yeah. through the motions, but do you believe it? Do you understand why this is? And I think that's so tied up to our current conversation where people are like, oh, the destruction of property. No, I draw the line at violence. Bitch, what we're talking about we're is talking the about murder the of a black of man life. again yeah. during a pandemic. So exactly. like context and perspective, you know, it's like, can we recenter the yeah. dialogue? Like you are not the victim yeah. here. So stop with those bullshit white tears, which is such an important conversation to have if we want to exactly. break through. I'm, I'm really grateful to have this as part of the interview because I feel like we cannot address, we cannot have this interview without addressing these current situations, uh, the current situation. And, you know, I cannot express enough how heartbreaking all of this has been to watch uh, and how... Um, yes, my heart goes out for all of those who are out in the streets and for the organizations who have spent not just these past years, but a hundred years fighting for civil rights in the United States. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. And we do need to, I think, this conversation about the violent policing industrial complex that we mm-hmm. take for as granted, almost like as, as normal, if you will, like this is, it's an essential part of who we are. Uh, is it though? Cause I mean, uh, going with this conversation, the formation of police wow. force was as slave catchers. So do we really need them? Do we want that kind? So I think that it's, it's re-envisioning, reimagining a brand new world that a lot of us may be thinking that's not possible, but it is. And, you know, as artists, I think that, or, you know, anybody who works with artists, we know that that picture, that vision that you have in your brain can be, be manifested into reality with just a few actions. You know what I mean? So I think that that possibility is, you know, we're here. I see it. I'm hopeful. Um, I think that, like you were saying, echoing those feelings of, of just like being heartbroken and, and feeling all these emotions. 
And then having to also step back and realize as a non-Black person, even if I am a person of color, as a non-Black person, this is not the time to get weak, you know, and be like, oh my God, I'm I'm feeling emotion. Like I'm drained. No, 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 no. This yeah. is not that moment. You know what I mean? You better hold it together. Like this is not, this is not about you. This is like, if you're feeling that way, can you have some compassion and empathy and, and, and imagine what's going on through the minds and bodies of people who are truly affected, yeah. aka our black community. You know what I mean? So it's very, multiple, multiple layers. Um, but yeah, I totally am here for the protesters. I think and that change is just possible. Because you are coming. there in Tulsa, I'm curious to know uh, what your experience with these past few days has been. So you know what it was it's it is interesting because there were a couple of protests here as well as it's been happening nationwide um and for the first time you know whenever these kinds of uh um you know get together protests happen i do join in as much as possible here mm-hmm. it was the first time that i chose not to because it's a different context i think again coming from baltimore we had an uprising in 2015 in response to the killing of Freddie Gray in the hands of police. So, you know, same thing was happening nationwide coverage. Mm, like, oh, my yeah. God, th- those thugs were labeled like, again, putting the de- demonizing the people that were seeking justice and change. So mm-hmm. I noticed that happening again with this go around. But locally, now that I'm in Tulsa, it is a different context. So, you know, like if I'm going to the store and I happen to jump on a ride share, um, the conversations that are that I have yeah. are very telling with like white men often. And, you know, a lot about, for instance, um, right before the pandemic, I was sending my mother some money. And because, you know, Latinos, I was <laughs> using Walmart because that's her preferred way of sending whatever. So I went there and the rideshare person is like, white man asks me, why didn't you pay the extra dollar to go to the, the Walmart up the road? Because, you know, this one is so, you know, and I had to imply and gather from what he was saying that he was refer- referring to the fact that this is a predominantly black and Latino, Holy. Um, you know, Walmart, but that's where the communities go. And so he and his next comment was, whenever I go to this one, I make sure that I open carry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so for me, it flashes back these like, yeah. or I get flashes of the the killing, yeah. the mass shooting that happened in Texas, you know, at the Walmart. So I'm like, these it's a different context here and guns are are the, almost like the norm on both sides so you're like just because i'm you're protesting with us i don't you're also carrying a gun like it just it creeps me out i did mm-hmm. not feel comfortable enough to do so and on top of that i am a permanent resident here and i feel okay. like it's different when you're not okay. a citizen so i'm like let me not be foolish about interesting this. and i i you know i also like mm-hmm. we are still in the middle of a pandemic as well so uh, it is so wild so i i just you know so wild i love all of those out protesting um the right things in the right places for the right reasons but i sure hope that they take care of their health and safety in that regard yeah, and I have been seeing a yeah. lot of folks wearing masks, right? But again, it's that proximity. I know that it was reported that three people yeah. at the Tulsa protest oh, okay. um, did yeah. Uh, yeah. test positive. So, so it's like, holy shit. Yep. But, you know, and I, I guess just to kind of carry on to the artwork, I guess, but I will say, even within that conversation, let's also reframe it and say um, how even during a pandemic, 
white supremacist thinking was still yes. able to kill yep. a black man or multiple. You know what I mean? So it's like, holy cow, not even a pandemic could stop racism and this deep embedded hatred that Americans yeah. have within us. And we just have to deal well, with thank that you. knowledge. Thank you for sharing about your experience with, with this in Tulsa and at large, you know, your thoughts on this, because it does tie into your work. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, if you could much. tell us a little bit more about um, what you do make. Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, my training was in painting. So ever since then, um, it you know I kind mm -hmm. of branched out and started with uh, performance. So it just felt very natural. I was I've always been very performative in nature. Um, I think it stems from oh. having two family members who are deaf and mute. So just being able to um, conversate or engage with family members, it was a very performative situation. A lot of using your hands, which, you know, Mexicanos already do anyway, but uh, using your hands a lot. And so anyway, performance seemed very, it was a nice, easy transition. Um, and then I started creating these overwhelming floral uh, wearable sculptures that I would make and then embody for performances. And so that was kind of like when I started realizing this mm -hmm. is the true work that I'm willing to stand behind. Oh. So this body of work is titled The Nobodies. And The Nobodies was actually inspired by reading yeah. uh, Octavio Paz, the, the Labyrinth of Solitude. And then in one point in the, so The Labyrinth of Solitude is really thinking about almost like the consciousness of like the American Mexican or the American consciousness and the Mexican consciousness and thinking almost like these sister sibling, you know, neighboring um, countries. But at one point he mentions Los Navie, the nobodies and kind of like who are the nobodies and they're faceless and they're this and they're that. And for me, it really kind of stuck with me in terms of like having tying it to an immigrant experience and having to kind of like feel so visible but invisible at the same time wherever you go or for instance if i put it this way like everybody wants the tacos everybody wants the um you know the 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 culture the food the music but nobody wants the people yeah. that come with it well you know what i'm saying white people don't so that was kind of like the beginning of that series and then with that series after my painting history i realized that for this new body of bodies of work, I was going to be working in series. So the nobody started in 2009 and it's still okay. active now. So, you know, over 10 years now. And yeah. And so that's one body of work uh, in performance, but then there's other bodies of work, for instance, the scapegoats uh, it's more a sculptural series where I'm thinking about the archetype of the scapegoat. And then a different mm -hmm. body of work is the white constructions we mentioned earlier where, again, it's more of a visual installation uh, series that deconstructs this notion uh, of the arbitrary construction of race in the U.S. Uh, and there's two more bodies of work. So in the past 10 years, uh, five bodies okay. of work is what I'm really and, kind of standing And going behind. back to the scapegoat, so I, mm -hmm. I saw a version of that um, that was, you actually had live models inside of the kind of things you had built. And is that, the, is that your preferred way oh, to show uh -huh. that work? So this okay, and so with the five bodies of work, the the two that are quote unquote visual that sometimes do have some elements of performance, but can also mostly stand alone as quote unquote hmm, interesting, but just not live artworks, okay. are the scapegoats, which again are sculptural in nature, and the white constructions. But 
so both of those can stand alone by themselves but i have experimented with doing performances within both bodies of work so the the work you're describing um i hired a performer and then i myself was performing as the scapegoat and it was an ongoing um installation so it was a beautiful installation and then activated by the performers for the opening and the closing so that was beautiful i liked it uh but but i'm you know I've realized that it's it's heavier okay. towards the and it's a sculptural. Um, and I also saw that you have a mm-hmm. and like kind of an alter ego for performance art. Is that something you pursue? I am talking about Doctor H Corona. Are you talking about Doctor H Corona? <laughs> oh, okay. I love Dr. So something I forgot to mention when I introduced myself is I have uh-huh. a background as an arts organizer. So that's something that um, really came hand in hand after I. Um, left painting, if you will. I still paint, but you know, after I left painting, because suddenly it wasn't about being isolated and alone in the studio. Uh, doing performance was a very co- uh, collective um, endeavor. So, you know, whether or not others were participating in my performance, we had to work together to organize yeah. the event or the night of performances, you know? So, like, even that already started to shift the way, um, yeah, I engaged with with thinking about how to make art. Um, so that I spent doing with friends in a warehouse space for about five okay. years. And then that's when Dr. H Corona comes in. I met my collaborator, Ada Pinkston, who is absolutely amazing, multidisciplinary artist um, from New York, also in Baltimore at the moment. And we went to an artist talk by Coco Fusco, who is one of my favorite artists in Baltimore. And, you know, she did a presentation on her performance work and then show an excerpt of a performance. And we were taken, we both idolized her, but we were taken aback by how uh, the full um, auditorium, when the Q&A happened, everybody was just going on about questions that were not relating to Mm. the performance work she had just literally presented on. So we went home, we had a beer, and we were like, uh, we went to actually our friend's house. We had a beer and we just had a, this whole conversation about interesting. What does that mean? Oh my God. Maybe there's not a particular framework in place for Baltimore communities to engage with performance art. Not yeah. that we don't know that performance art exists, but more like, how do you engage with that person? Like pretending to vomit in the corner. That's weird. <laughs> I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm not going to talk about it. So we created, um, six months worth of planning oh, or yeah. programming right there in the living room, drinking a beer. And then right there and then we made a pact. We were like, okay, are you willing to commit for five years that no matter what, we will continue doing X, Y, Z to accomplish this mission? So we both committed and we said, yep, five years. And so we stayed true to that. So for five years, we produced monthly events that started off as uh, open, uh, open, uh, what do we call it? Open stage. So we would invite artists. We did not even curate like what works they were doing. We just wanted to get a sense for the uh, performance pulse in, in the art community. And people would uh, arrive. So we were like, okay, uh, those who want to perform arrive at 8 p.m. And we'll start at 9, you know, 7.50, like 10 people would show up. And you're like, oh, my <laughs> God, there's a, there's a need for this, you know. So through that, um, you know, we immediately develop our alter ego. So Dr. H. Corona became this type of doctor that were, you know, and almost very cliche now, if you look at a lot of performance artists, I feel like everybody goes (laughs) to the doctor phase. But we went through, we would put on this white coat, um, 
both of us. So I'm Dr. H. Corona. She's Dr. A. Pinkston. And then we would very matter of fact uh, use the language that museums were using. So not sure. that we would copy it, but we would copy the structure to, to kind of give this validity and credibility to the artists we were working with. So again, that's where the doctors came into play so that we ourselves didn't have to feel any kind of self-conscious about it. No, no, no. We are doctors, as a matter of fact. So we're delivering these matter-of-fact, you know, answers to you people. And it was really fun in terms of establishing that. Um, I don't think that we carried it through as um, strongly as we wanted to because, you know, then issues started to emerge. For instance, people this is a complicated conversation, but we're organizers, but we're also artists. So in the eyes of others, it's a complicated situation. So we started getting invitations as lab bodies. That's our organization. But they were asking for the two of us. So we were like, wait, I don't think you understand. Like we're, we're creating a platform for other artists. And so that started kind of like throwing off Dr. H, Dr. A. Pinkston, because suddenly, for instance, the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, invited lab bodies but again they wanted specifically the two of us to be the ones that showed (laughs) see what i mean so we were like wait a minute so is that dr h or is is it both like is it do you have all four personas you know exactly so but for us because we were in that mindset of we made this commitment for five years we always decided that kind of like any kind of um well visibility yes but also this kind of um establishing Mm -hmm. our little organization as legit was helpful you know so in those five years we were we brought in over a hundred and thirty thousand dollars most of it dispersed back into our artist community which even though it's over five years is not that much money for us that was huge like we were literally putting money in the hands of artists you know that uh were not didn't have as many opportunities to show their work because they were doing unconventional stuff you know um no, it was great. So that was a long. Answer <laughs> it's a lot of information. That, but it's a complicated. <laughs> it's a lot of information. <laughs> it's so well. I've done so much yeah. stuff that I'm like, oh my god. Do we have another six? Maybe hours? let's have like a part yeah. two in the future. <laughs> you <laughs> and, know what? Um, well, I'm curious because you know, like you bring up that sort of that vocabulary of museums, and there was a book that came out um, not too long ago that. Uh, is called uh, Potential History Unlearning Imperialism. And um, I'm, mm. I'm like, I can draw a complete blank on the author's name. I'll have to, I'll put that in, I'll put that in the, the links in the, the website for sure. But the, uh, she okay. talks about, you know, how museums are essentially a function of imperialism. Like they came out of the need for a place to put the looted good, you know? Mm, exactly. That word, yeah. and, mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm just curious, like how, like, you know, how you sort of interact with institutions along those lines, because, you know, museums are so yeah. effing annoying. <laughs> Let's just put it out there. I love institutions. I am never turning down an institution. I think that it's important to engage with them because with all their problems, I still know that there's, you know, good people that I trust within those walls. Well, not everywhere, but a lot of the places do have them. And it's actually, it's a fight for them mm-hmm. even within those walls, right? So, like, they do. there's people within there working, who yes. are fighting for the same fight that we're fighting for. So, it's nice to be able to connect and kind of, like, aid that 
you know, goal. So I still commit to working with those institutions, but I think that um, they come, like you said, so establishing the fact that a lot of museums, most museums, all museums are a collection of most likely an individual's collection. And whether they looted that stuff or they acquired their wealth through, you know, strange, maybe problematic means, it's still, you mm-hmm. know, a nasty little world where you're like, yeah, yeah, how are you paying for all this stuff? So I think that those spaces are just, they're problematic. I think that even currently, we all know that most museums are populated mm-hmm. by white men. So already from the get-go, it's like, all right, then throw out museums, right? Like, they're not actually a reflection of anything. Yeah. So, I mean, they are, you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> a lot of general things here. But so there are problems with the museums. And I think that um, engaging with those dialogues, again, artists thrive doing that. You know what I mean? It's just uh, figuring out a way to um, engage with these museum professionals, because I think that, you know, you once in a while do get an amazing person who is right there with you and your concerns mm-hmm. and the way you're approaching art making. But there are also the opposite. So there's all those other people that are just upkeeping the history of museums that yeah. don't like pushback, you know, even just a few years ago when like artists are like, uh, where are the Latinx artists in yeah. here or where are the black artists? Like people don't want to be confronted with that because of the implications that it brings. If you don't have black and Latino or brown artists in your collection, well, what does that make you? Like, you know, it's it's a difficult conversation, but I think it's an important one to have. And uh, we are pushing at it. And, and I do see changes happening. We see it right now with black artists in like museums, clearly not any, you know, not close enough to making it normal or leveled out. But you do have seen in the past few years, this increase in, in black artist representation in mm-hmm. across museums or exhibitions uh, with themes and concerns that are, are, you know, pertinent to, to these communities. But I, as a Latinx artist right now, as a Mexican artist, I realize that we are not like we don't have that yeah. representation yet either. And it's it's still small for black artists. And I'm like, well, you know what? We need to get on this because I don't th- I think that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I don't see us having this kind of same momentum yet as like Mexicans in America or Latinos in America, the United States specifically. But I think that it's kind of like our next sure hurdle right how do we get together to push back on these institutions and force them to to recognize us i mean you remember that um oh my god blinking out um the feminist art show what was it called in it traveled across the country it was latin american women 1960 to something you know what i'm talking about yeah but but even just this retro or this or like um, exhibit highlighting mm-hmm. all these Latin American women of from the sure. 60s, 70s, I think, uh, it was so shocking, right? Because people were like, wait a minute, this is amazing work. Yeah. Like, how come I don't know about it? And it's like, well, exactly. yeah, that's yeah. the issue. Like, it, the museum is not comprehensive, especially when it's been on the For hands a long of time. Men. Yeah. Uh, forever. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I agree. Mm-hmm. It's like a really, I mean, I, I work with museums and I've worked for museums past and I, you know, I, I do like, but I, I just feel like acknowledging that history is incredibly, important, you know? Um, and I was just curious about your experience as, as somebody who's worked with museums quite a bit in your history. And, um, and yeah. It... Well, let me tell you this. It's been very, like, you have to be very like, you have to feel <laughs> out what you're dealing with. How about that? Like you need to, 
figure out who brought you in. That's your first yeah. kind of point of contact, right? So like establishing a good communication with them so that you're both on the same page. Whenever I work with institutions or organizations, I realize that these people that, that are your immediate uh, interface, they're, if, if, you, if they're doing it right, they are on your side, right? So like you want to provide them with enough information and, and resources so that when they're making the case uh, for you, even, you know, some museums are like, no, you can't have any liquids. Well, let's say you wanted a liquid. Well, that's your first point of contact. Like they're going sure. to make the case exactly. for you. You know what I mean? So like establishing your your connections, your people within the institution. And the other thing I would say is like, because of these conversations that we're having, um, I think that just, you know, I, you know, and I actually hate saying that because I was going to say like um, the politics of like, being polite and whatnot but something that i've learned is like you're nice to everybody across the board whether it's like the receptionist the security guard the curator the director like you have to kind of like respect all these people and be consciously kind because first of all it's just it works better second of all a lot of the times it is the person in the office that has that can present your work to again like if, if you're having a board meeting and the person who's doing the printing is actually the secretary that you treated like shit they, you know what I mean? They may not do the best little uh, job at putting together your presentation in a way that makes it more impactful when yeah. they hand it out. Exactly. Even little things like that, you know, like it's a collaboration. Uh, but when when there has been um, issues with museum settings like that, um, you feel it's horrible, right? Because you're like, oh, my God, I literally feel like I'm oh. being gagged right now. Or you you know where you have to kind of like. Like, you realize yeah. what boundaries you can push with sure. your current administration. Sure. And um, I'm going to segue from that into asking you, I mean, yes. because you make uh, kind of a variety of different kinds of work, but you're thematically very tied in together. Yeah. So I'm just curious to know, like, why, um, how do you determine what is important for you to make or pursue? Good question. So I think within, again, so, okay, when I keep talking about these 10 years, just this January, I kind of had my mark for the 10 years from 10, 2010 to 2020, which I'm like, the years that I'm willing mm-hmm. to claim. So really, the now, in gen, since January, what I've been doing is kind of like looking back at those 10 years with new eyes and realizing that for, so that's what I'll be talking about right now, but those bodies of work, it was very much about, um, you know, centering in on those difficult ways that I was not being held by the world or by the country or by my city and realizing that there is something there. Like if you are feeling uncomfortable about this or you feel like there's something missing in the ecosystem, there's probably truth to that. So like when I finally kind of like honed in on that or when I was able to like, you know, do a quick performance that denounced white supremacy in 2011 it was very those were the kinds of like moments that that really started to to change my thinking and my approach to art making where actually the easy thing to do is to paint a flower or the easy thing to do is to paint like something that's accessible and colorful and abstract and I had to realize that uh, there was also an importance to the heavier conversations that were not being had because there was no frameworks for them Mm -hmm. Uh, so for me, it always starts with like, well, what am I feeling strongly about? Uh, how can I expand upon this? And then once I do that soul searching, um, and a lot of the times that happened to, through going to residencies, because early on, 
I had a full-time job. I put myself through college and then afterwards as a full-time florist. So oh, wow. Floral arrangements. So you see connections oh, yeah, to like sure. my materiality. But, um, but really kind of like, you know, set, like figuring out what those concerns were, the, honing them in, going to a little residency, spending like a week or two secluded in nature or something. Mm-hmm. And then going through all the different, you know, just um, vetting this idea. So why constructions? Oh my God, is it worth it? Well, yes, it's a, it's a current yeah. problem in the United States. It's so pressing and it's to be talked about. So like once I do all the checkoffs uh, and I'm secure on it, that's it. Like I don't necessarily revisit it too much in terms of like, oh my God, is this good art? Oh, is this bad? No. Like the nobodies I, you know, had established the reasoning behind it and why. That's why I was able to to keep developing over 10 years, you know? Sure. Similarly with the white constructions. Once I was set on it uh, at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, um, that was it. So like whenever, you know, I'm not going to waste sleep or thinking about, but is this good art? Oh my God, should I have done something differently? No, no, no. I already... I did that part and I already made a show. Yeah. Yeah. It's already out there. And I mean, mean, there's a, there's a question that um, I asked some people and it's about criticism, but it sounds like your relationship with criticism is quite healthy. (laughs) Well, yeah. What do you mean by like, 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 uh, like bad review or criticism, like about the actual art? I guess, I guess in general, I mean, because there are multiple layers of criticism, you know, there's like, you know, if you've gone to like a traditional art school, setting then like criticism is such a humongous part of your those crits i saw people crying yeah (laughs) but then once you get out you're like man i miss that criticism and then until oh and then feedback from other people but then when you get to a certain level like all like everybody just picks your stuff apart you know so i yeah to know like you know how you maybe cope with criticism um through that so yeah i will say that the kind of like um, like mass criticism I think also comes with being widely known mm-hmm. I definitely have to humble myself and know that I'm like I'm still emerging mm-hmm. I'm still trying to get like establish myself out there and even let people know that I'm, I'm out here existing making this work so I don't think that I've had to deal with that kind of like criticism at large but in terms of um, dealing with you know critical conversations when it comes to your work you, ha- you bring up such a good point, because I think uh, when we're in school, if we go through school uh, to be an artist, not everybody does that, mm-hmm. and it's totally fine. Um, you know, we maybe take it for granted, but luckily for me, after schooling, I actually lived in a warehouse in Baltimore with mm-hmm. six friends. So it was tons of us, but we also had tons of space. And so I realized right early on that that was actually the most amazing thing that happened to me after college, because that sense of community stayed. So it was actually very helpful because those conversations still happen, but now it was your friends who were also being critical and you understood each other enough to maybe not take it personally. Again, when you are engaged in the conversation about your work. Yeah, because you're just expanding upon what you're putting on the table. So it's like, if you put that on the table, it's, it's, it's you know, it's fine to talk about and you may, you may not like what you hear. But for me, that was very helpful. And I think that there's so much knowledge to be shared between artists um, but again, seeking out that specific community to to get specific criticism, like, no, 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 I want your critiques. I love that. And I think that that is a part of every artist's journey. And um, some of us more successful than others, you know, some people may be like, maybe they're so thirsty for somebody to come and talk about their work, you know, mm-hmm. but nobody will do so unless they engage in that. 
So it's like, okay, what kind of... Because criticism is very healthy. I think that that's how we're... We need hard questions thrown at us. And I think that a part of the artist's job is to be able to have answers to what it is that you're talking about. Because at the end of the day, you are the expert in your field or your or your your body of work. Like, nobody knows it better than you do. So, like, what do you mean you don't have an answer? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the beautiful things about art is you get to create your own answers. You know, but the, yeah. a lot of times your own answers are questions. So it's... You know, exactly. There's not a wrong version of that necessarily. Actually, I love that you said that because I do think... Yeah, I think that, like, I like artists that don't answer the thing for you. You know what I mean? They're just like, oh, no, I just made it more difficult. Yeah. I like that. It's like, mm-hmm, art is not here to solve the thing for you. No. It's it's to uh, make you think about it in a more deeper way, I feel, you know? Yeah. And, re- you know, of re- course, that depends on the artist and their intentions. But, you know, I, I think... That, true, true, true. You're yeah, right. I, I do personally feel that way. Um. Well, we're getting kind of towards the end of our time for the interview, and I have a few questions that are a little bit kind of quicker, short answer, just because we are... It's funny because these are the hardest ones. Yeah. I'm like, no, <laughs> no. Like, we'll have another hour no, of interview no. now. No. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, we're still kind of in lockdown situation, um, especially here in Mexico City. We're still very much like in lockdown situation. So I'm, I'm just curious... Um, who are some of your greatest artistic influences? Oh, another question. Okay, so I feel like clearly that is not, I mean, what have people been saying? Do they just say one person? <laughs> like, that's crazy. But for me, I think it, it's had a journey, yeah. right? It's like when you started off, um, oh, God, as cliche as this is, Lord. But when my teacher, when I was like, in freshman year in high school she knew that again i was very artistic and she purposefully pulled a book that was just here i go god delete this part just kidding <laughs> frida kahlo she was like here's the book by frida kahlo i understand there's so many problems with frida kahlo and i totally don't see her as like no i see her as complex right yeah but for me that was kind of like my introduction into not necessarily art but but understanding that this person in all their ailments whether or not they were privileged that they were able to make a life as an artist. So for me, that was kind of like the the thing that hooked me. Like, oh, wait, what was her job? She just did this? And I was like, interesting. I want to do that, you know? So for me, again, yes, I start with, with her because we, who didn't? <laughs> but then really thinking about, like, in Mexico City, Jesusa Rodriguez as a performance artist, when I started really diving into that, <laughs> she made such a big impact on me. And I know that in Mexico, she considers herself like a theater artist, but I think that Mexico has a different relationship to performance art and theater. Yeah. You know what I mean here? We're like, oh, theater? Never. I'm a performance artist. There, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So she was influential as heck. Like, just how forceful and funny and witty and beautiful her her presentations were. But then the conversations that were being had were so dense and so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget when she was like, oh, America, like you couldn't even name yourself. You literally named yourself the name of the continent. And I'm like, Oh <laughs> my God. Like she's putting words to the things that I'm trying to decipher. Yes. So she's amazing. Um, of course, Cezanne and Matisse. Cezanne, because when um, my last year in high school, I had the chance to go to France, Aix-en-Provence. <laughs> And we toured his studio and we were in his neighborhood. And it was it was just, you know, I always loved him. So Cezanne for sure. Matisse, 
because I'm from Baltimore and Baltimore has the biggest, largest collection of Matisse in the world okay. at the Baltimore Museum okay. of Art. So whether or not I want to accept it, I see Matisse's influence in my work all the time. So I'm like, oh, here you are. Um, Teresita Fernandez is amazing contemporary artist. Coco Fusco, who I mentioned earlier, has had such tremendous impact on, in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to take a, a, a long or a short workshop with her in Provincetown that was very important. Uh, Guillermo Gomez Peña, Kara oh. Walker, Octavio Paz, Eduardo Galeano, La Chica Boom, Carrie Mae Weems. I don't know. I can go on. <laughs> Not so well, thank you. Thank you so much. And then um, I'm curious. You're, you're like, these were short answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're your answers, you know, it's okay. Um, so a little bit, I guess this would be more short answer, but like, do you have a, a favorite album, like musical album? You know what I'm, I don't know if I have like a fake, I know these are, this is why it's problematic or troublesome for me, <laughs> but my current album that I'm really liking is Helado Negro. Have you heard of Helado Negro? No. Helado Negro. So Helado Negro is an amazing musician, Latinx from, uh, in the States. Uh, I want to say they were in LA, but I, they might've moved. Uh, they have a new album. Um, this is How You Smile. It's so beautiful. It's stunning. Like seriously, everybody go check it out. It's, it's just perfect for the studio. Uh. Um yeah, so that's what I'm listening to right now. So I'm kind of, this is what I do. I'll get hooked on something, and I'm hooked on it for, like, a week. <laughs> like, I'm like, this thing playing nonstop, and then I'm like, okay, I'm done. So I kind of move on to things. Perfect. And I'll have to listen to that now while I edit all of it. Uh, You'll love it. It's so nice. <laughs> so do you have a, what about a favorite movie right now? Oh, God. Oh, no. Right now. Oh, what is it? You know what? I'm blanking out. Oh, you know what? It's not a movie from right now. Uh-huh. Um, but do you remember that movie, The Price of Everything? No, I don't. Oh, you have to watch I, that. The Price of Everything. I think it, I want to say 2019, but it might have been 2018. Okay. It was on HBO, and it's about the art world and the inner workings, and it follows, you know... Um, a collector, advisors, art historians, and then artists. Yes, yes, yes. And it's shocking to see the behind the scenes, right? I mean, we know this stuff, but when you see it, you're like, uh, holy shit, like this is how the art world works. And it does get, gave me an understanding of how to better kind of approach sales and engaging with, you know, arts collectors. Oh, good. Educational. Oh, and what about that movie, Mi Familia? I know it's so old. Do you remember uh-huh. that movie? Uh huh, yeah. yeah. My family, so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about a favorite play? Oh, God. I don't know. I'm blanking out on plays. That's okay. We can. I don't, I don't do too many plays. That's okay. I don't. Yeah. And what about a, a book? Sorry, listeners. Okay. <laughs> a book. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? A book, I will. Let me shout out The Labyrinth of Solitude by Octavio Paz, even though that's an older book, just because it was so influential for me. Um, another influential book that kind of like kickstarted my thinking in this way was obviously Borderlands, uh, La Frontera by Gloria Saldua. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking out on the other book. But there was this book, I can't remember his name. I'm going to, oh no, I'm going to be so mad at myself but it was about essentially the perception or how the construction of the mexican in the united states happened through film so it really goes into the history of 
how did we come to think of Mexicans the way we do now? Mm-hmm. Like when the the this you know man in the lighthouse was like, oh, they're rapists, they're this or that, or they're lazy. Where do mm-hmm. do those things come from? It was really revolutionary for my thinking to realize that it's been these constructions, mostly by white people, uh, presenting the Mexican to mass audiences, and how that presentation or caricature of the Mexican stays with us. So when we close our eyes and we think about Speedy Gonzalez. We associate it with a Mexican, but if you think about Speedy Gonzalez, he was not fast because he was fast and amazing. He was fast because he was a thief. Yeah. He slept in a can yeah. of tuna or sardine. You know what I mean? So uh, like, yeah, it was important to deconstruct that in order to not be bound by it. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, no, it's yeah. And um, if you if oh, you think the of author it... is William Nericio, but I can't remember the book. Okay. I'll link all yeah. that to our website as well, so people can find all that information there. Um, so what about, we're like sort of in a, a crazy time right now at large in the world, but do you have any idea of when your next show or function is? So you know what? A couple of my things were postponed. So because I don't, I can say that my next fun- function is launching a brand new podcast called La Valentina Podcast. Mm. It will be airing across all um, you know platforms that have your favorite podcast. And I am co-hosting it with my good friend and artist, Estefani Mercedes in Washington, D.C. And we are just two queer Latinx artists getting together, having our conversations about the art world, uh, our favorite artists, and also pop culture. Um, mm. And so it's very casual. I think that a lot of our the work that we do independently is so heavy, as you can tell from this conversation, mm-hmm. that um, <laughs> we're kind of taking a little bit more lighthearted approach with the podcast. Okay. So we are hoping to do interviews with like, queer Latinx artists, but at the moment, we're just, you know, um, having like a little kiki at the beginning and then engaging in a substantial conversation. So some of the conversations have been about uh, resources for artists during covid or how do how can artists help in the mourning process mm-hmm. during like you know such a, a a tragic situation like this? Uh, we also dive into is art school worth it? Should artists consider art school or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know those kinds of topics that again are appropriate to the artist community, uh, but are a little bit cheekier and a little bit more fun. Yeah, yeah. So and follow that's... us, La Valentina Podcast on Instagram and lavalentinapodcast.com. I love it. And we'll link all of that to the interview transcript as well. Um, well, yeah, congrats with that. And I, I look forward to listening. Yes. And I'm excited that you're starting this podcast or have this podcast because I'm going to be looking at the roster. Maybe I'll be pulling <laughs> people from there. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I have, I guess I have one final question for you. And that is mm-hmm. if you had like a little bit of advice for a beginning professional um, in the arts world or in, as an artist, or if you had a little bit of advice for yourself when you were getting started out, what would that be? Hmm. You know, I think that if you've already jumped through the hurdles of, of realizing, yes, I am I'm committing to making art or that is something that is a calling for me. I think, first of all, it's accepting that and then just kind of like really um, accepting yourself within that, um, you know, context. And then I will say that whether or not you go through art schooling, I think that um, knowledge and learning is so important and it does not have to come from just say an academic setting. So just Mm -hmm. how are you approaching your research? How are you always learning? How are you establishing your art practice? Um, I think that one of the biggest things that I learned was 
you know, a lot of us maybe have this romantic idea of, oh, to be a full-time artist means 100% of your time is spent making art and in the studio. Mm-hmm. And I have found that that is not a, uh, the correct approach. I mean, if you're able to do so, amazing. And I'm glad you have a trust fund. But <laughs> if you don't have a trust fund, I think that you need to develop a good uh, balance between your studio practice and, let's be real, your office, boring work like you have to do administrative work which means crafting your your artist bio making sure you have a headshot rewriting your artist statement Mm -hmm. you know paying for a website you know because these things do matter in the way that people see you from the outside so it takes time and i am not kidding you when i say it's about half and half like you spend have the time working on computer stuff and have the time in the studio. So that is such an, an I think, an important piece that um, is not told or, or reiterated to us in, in schooling. I did go through mm-hmm. art school. It's not reiterated. And I've noticed that it's what you have to do. Like those grants applications are not going to submit themselves unless you create, you know, maybe you have an assistant that's doing it for you. But if you don't, then there's a, t- you know, I would wake up at 8 a.m. and spend the first two hours dealing with art stuff, like going through artist calls, understanding what is the ecosystem, in the, what's the arts ecosystem out there? What are the types of opportunities that are available? So for instance, when I started doing my, my project grants, I knew what little grants were available. And then when I saw that some fellowships have been developed, like the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, I was like, oh my God, that's a substantial package. So you start to kind of map out what's out there and then figure out what aligns with you what do you need and then it makes it easier for you to kind of like um make a plan to go get those things that's a lot i know that's a lot of information but um you know nobody's gonna be doing this stuff for you nobody cares if you succeed as an artist there's so many artists out there like there's it's not like we're lacking artists in the world so (laughs) you know we're our own employees you got to push yourself to the top somehow you know and also, you know, I used to joke when I was like once upon a time working on my bachelor's and the in art and I was like, man, if I'd have realized that I was going to have to be my own like administrator and public relations manager, uh-huh. maybe picked a different career, you know, but now look at me like I have a podcast. Like, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> you know so, what? But it's also it is amazing because it is a lot of work. Yeah. But then you realize, holy cow, I have so many skills. Yeah. You know, you're, you're suddenly able mm-hmm. to like, I don't know, for me transferring from this, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a poor little artist. Like, mm-hmm. do you want to help me? That is so defeating. And like, so it made you feel gross as opposed to then changing that and being like, hello, I am your partner. We are equals. Yes, you're paying my check. But guess what? You need me to complete yeah. what it is that you're trying to complete. So changing that mentality of like the starving poor artist at the will of the world to no, I'm in control. Um, I am an equal to you. Let's talk. And guess what? That changes the way that people relate to you because they know they can't fuck you over. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you're like the end. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, i I so much appreciate your time today. It's been really great to get to know you better and hear about your so trajectory and work and your current situation there in Tulsa and everything. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out. I think this is exciting and I can't wait to dive into, yes, the, the actual episodes, but also the, the transcriptions, right? I'm like, oh, what an amazing historical record. Oh, thank you.
Yeah. So congrats yeah. on launching it. Thank you. And mm-hmm. I hope to see you in August, maybe in Tulsa. Should yes, yes, yes. Hopefully, yeah. So that's still happening, right? Yes. Yep. As far as yes, I yes, I'll definitely see you then. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye, listeners. I hope you all had as much fun listening to this podcast as I had speaking and learning more about Jose Corona's work. Because we talked so much about all of the current events in the world and we maybe skipped over some of the major projects that Jose has accomplished in his life, I really encourage you to go see his website and research a little bit more about him. His website is www.josecorona.com. That's H-O-E-S-Y-C-O-R-O-N-A dot com. Si disfrutaste de este podcast y deseas apoyar a ProArtes México, te invitamos a visitar nuestros artículos promocionales o a través de una donación directa en nuestra página web. Y si pasas por ahí... No olvides suscribirte a nuestro boletín y seguirnos en nuestras redes sociales para mantenerte al día de nuestras actividades. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support Proetes México, we have merchandise and direct donation available on our website. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media to keep up to date with all that we do. Recuerda que puedes compartir este podcast con tus amigos desde nuestro espacio web con la transcripción traducida en proartesmexico.com.mx. And remember, you can share this podcast with your friends from our website with the translated transcript at proartesmexico.com.mx. Deseamos agradecer especialmente a Rodrigo Castillo Filomarino, miembro del Sistema Nacional de Creadores de Arte Fonca, por la composición original de la música de nuestro podcast. And thank you to Rodrigo Castillo Filomarino, member of the National Art Creators Program, FONCA, of the Cultural Secretary of Mexico, for the original musical composition you hear on this podcast. Gracias por escucharnos. Thank you for listening. <laughs>